Hi, and welcome to the West Visalia Audio Podcast. Each message is designed to help you grow and inspire you to take action. Please take a moment to hit the subscribe button, and don't be shy to drop us a message if you have a question. Thanks for listening, and God bless. We will be in Psalm 33 this morning. We'll start class by reading the 33rd Psalm. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give strength to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breadth of His mouth all their hosts. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of all the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord the people whom He has chosen as His heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where He sits enthroned, He looks out on the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let Your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in You. So we've started the last few weeks of class with uh, reading of the Psalms. And what is the um, key point that the psalmists are getting across? Creation and, and what specifically about creation are they focused, or what is their the the action that they take with creation in mind? God loved us. What else? What what is what is their default reaction uh, when they acknowledge everything that God has done for us through His love? They praise. They sing praise. They fear God. There's this constant repetition. Um, throughout the Psalms, um, and, and while like especially the Psalm 33, it's not necessarily focusing specifically on creation, but it uses creation as a justification that God is worthy of praise. The fact that God spoke and everything came into being shows that God is worthy to be praised. And that is the, the repeating theme that we have seen through the Psalms. That God, the creator of this world, creator of this universe, is worthy of our praise. And we should rejoice. We should rejoice. That should be the default. How, I mean, do we not just have a sense of awe when we, we see a beautiful sky? We went up to uh, Lake Kawia yesterday, and coming back down through the mountains, uh, or down the valley, into the valley, I don't know. Coming back down, um, the orange, oranges were in blossom, and you just smell that. I mean, it's, just, it's a beautiful smell. Um, and, and you just praise God. You look out and just see the beautiful mountains, and it's, it's just awesome. You just praise God. We look out through His creation, and we praise God for what He has done and what He has done for us. Where, where did we end last week? Where did we end off last week? Anyone remember? Genesis chapter 2. 
And we went through and we looked at God uh, telling the story of the creation of man, uh, a deeper creation of man. And if you remember, we looked uh, a little bit as to uh, what chapter 2 is telling us. Uh, And I'll be honest, uh, I'm not sure uh, if this recounts the story of Adam being the very first man or if Adam was the most important man at this period of time. Uh, And we'll get into that a little bit more. Um, and uh, look into uh, Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, probably depending on how much I talk today or next week as we look at the fall and understand how Paul uses Adam um, to, to look at that. Because I'm, I'm not questioning our, our, our theological conclusions, but maybe our exegetical conclusions need to step back and look at. In other words, that as we look to see if Adam was indeed the first man uh, does that make a theological impact on what we need to, to gather from it? If he was the first man, and if that has direct ties to the theology that we need to observe, uh, then that leads us in one direction. If he was the most important man, then that leads us in another direction. Or, at the end of the day, does it have an impact on our theology, uh, which Paul will unpack in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, uh, to see if it makes a difference, if that makes sense. Um, but as we, we look through uh, Genesis chapter 2, we see in chapter 2, verse 5, that there is a, a period of time when there was no bush of the field yet in the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. So in chapter 1, we see God creating order throughout his universe. And now we see back here in chapter 2 that there is order that is need to be created within this world. And so he does that by... by uh, creating this man, the man, Adam, and he forms him out of what? The dust of the ground. And this is an interesting play. I'm going to turn this down just a little bit. Uh, It's an interesting play. What is the Hebrew word for man? Adam. Adam. What's the Hebrew word for ground? Adamah. Those sound familiar? Isn't that neat? So what is the point that God is getting across in Genesis when he makes Adam out of Adamah? Dust. Man is dust. And another word for dust, or when we think of dust, what can we think of? Mortality, right? So what's the difference between Adam? What sets Adam apart? He's made out of the dust. God formed him from the dust of the ground. And we'll see later that to the dust he's going to return, right? So what is the difference? What's significant about Adam that the text tells us? He has a soul. God breathed into him what? Breathed the breath of life. So, had God not breathed the breath of life into Adam, what would the result have been? Death. Death. Had God not breathed the breath of life into Adam, he would have been just like the animals. He would remain dust. So, who does the life of Adam rely on? God. And God placed this Adam, whom he breathed life into, into a garden. And what is in this garden? 
the tree, tree of life. And what other trees? Okay, so we, we have two trees spelled out, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life. And then there's many other trees, right? And as we looked, we saw that, that Adam was set in there to work, uh, work the, excuse me, Adam was set to work and keep the garden, to work and keep the garden. And we looked at that a little bit. The wording there uh, is tied to the priestly service um, that the Israelites did uh, in the tabernacle. And so when Adam was tasked to work and keep the garden, he was to maintain the sacredness of this garden. And that was a big job, wasn't it? Because God stepped back to look and say that I have tasked Adam with this. And verse 18 of chapter 2, what's God's reaction? It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so we looked throughout chapter 1, this aspect of good. Good is functioning properly. And so here, God's conclusion is that Adam is not functioning properly by himself. So then he brings all the animals in front of Adam. Adam looks at all the animals, and uh, the conclusion afterwards that he gives names to all the animals, he gives them their identity, he gives them their purpose, but there was not a helper found fit for Adam from all the animals. And that's where we left off in chapter 2, verse 21 last week. And so we'll pick up in chapter 2, verse 21. I'll go ahead and read to the end of the chapter, and then we'll dig into it a little bit here. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So what do we see in this story right now, this telling? What jumps out at us? He didn't make woman from dust. And that, that, that's a big difference. As we look through, as what Jim pointed out, the, the text will give us these little hints. Who did he make the woman from? From Adam, from Adam's rib. What else jumps out at us? Uh, and, that, and that's a huge relationship. Jim said there's a lot of significance there with the relationship that the man and woman has in marriage. Uh, and as we look through, that significance is such that it usurps biology. We see it in, in verse 24, um, that why on earth would a man leave his father and mother? That's safety, that's security. But why on earth would he leave his father and mother to be with a woman? So it, it, there, there's something significant there that we'll, we'll dig into a little bit more. It, it was an arranged marriage. It was an arranged marriage. Yeah. yeah there, there, there's, some, there, there's some aspect to this nakedness uh, that's important. Here we see that they were naked and they were not ashamed. Uh, and like Tom was pointing out, we, we should be ashamed of nakedness at some point. And do we see nakedness show up again anywhere else in the, the Genesis story? Quite a bit. Quite a bit. There's actually focus on that. Bruce, do you have a comment? Yeah. 
Yeah, and so there, there's innocence. Um, and, and that's what I, I'm thankful that our kiddos still have that innocence with them. Because um, Abby was running around the backyard uh, buck naked yesterday, uh, getting into all the dirt. Uh, and then guess what? Coulter was, we realized last night he was sitting on the couch and half hour later he gets up, takes a blanket off and he's buck naked too. Uh, and, but there's, there's still some innocence there. There's still some innocence there. Uh, whereas, uh, eventually there's going to come a point where that innocence needs to be coached by mom and dad to, hey, cover it up a little bit. But then also there's an inherent shame associated with it. But let's dig in here to verse 21. The Lord God, so he, he acknowledged that uh, it's not good for man to be alone, that he needs a helper. So what does he do? What does God do to Adam? He puts him in a deep sleep, a deep sleep. And, and if we uh, don't have really time to look into this more, uh, but this is the same verbiage that is used for Abraham. When, uh, the God, when God comes and talks to Abraham and initiates a covenant, he puts Abraham into a deep sleep, and then Abraham has this vision of carcasses split in half and God walking down through the middle of the, the, of the, uh, the carcasses. And that's in Genesis uh, 15, I believe. I can't look, find my notes. Um, yeah, Genesis 15, 12 is when Abraham has this vision. We see this throughout, this term deep sleep shown up throughout uh, scripture throughout the Old Testament. And generally it'll come and show uh, a couple things. It'll show that man is unresponsive to human danger. So danger from someone else. Uh, it'll show that man is unresponsive to deity. Uh, so when God is trying to talk to them, this would be like Saul um, and First Samuel um, or Israel. Uh, they are unresponsive to talking to God. They're in a deep sleep. They're uh, ignorant of what God is trying to tell them. So unresponsive to danger, unresponsive to deity, or they're in a period of time where there is communication happening. So as we look at how that uh, deep sleep that Abraham went into, um, God communicated to Abraham that I am making a covenant, a unilateral covenant with you. Um, and it's the same word that we see here in Ad, uh, with Adam. So God caused Adam to sleep. Does this mean that he was put under for surgery, like under anesthesia? No, that, that, that's where we would be reading into the text. Here, it's God is putting Adam, preparing Adam to have some communication with him. And what is that communication that Adam has? Yeah, he took make a woman. And so while he slept, uh, we see that, that God took one of Adam's ribs and closed up the flesh. And so as we look at this word rib, what do we think? What do we think when we think of ribs? These things on us, right? And so how many of you guys grew up hearing that uh, women have one more rib than man? And why do we grow up being told that women have one more rib than man? Because he took one out, right? Wayne, do women have more than one rib? No, okay, so man and woman have the same number of ribs. Uh, I just want everyone to be on the same page. We have the same number. Was it 13 pairs? Isn't that it? Uh, there, there's... Yeah, there's uh, some, and then is there a floating one? Twelve ribs? Uh, I'm, I'm thinking beef, so I apologize. Twelve? <laughs> uh, okay. Um, regardless, man and women have the same number of ribs. So did God literally take a rib from Adam? I'm going to say no. 
I'm going to say no. And the way that that rib is used, um, it, it means so much more than just a rib. It means so much more. If we were to look at that rib, that term, if we were to turn to Exodus chapter 25 through chapter 28, or 1 Kings 6 and 11, or 6 through 7, Ezekiel 47, um, this is the ribs of a hill. Or when it's talking about the temple, most of it's talking about the temple, and it talks about the ribs of the temple being the structural supports, the side of the temple. So when he's using the term ribs, he's using it like we would today, a side of beef. Uh, and so think of that. Adam is, is a, his side, his other half was taken away from him and the flesh was closed up. And so we, we see the picture that Adam is getting from God, that God split him in half and made woman from his other half. And this is structural. It's talking about hills. It's using the rib of a hill, the side of a hill. It's talking about the ribs of the temple or the sides of a temple. It's an architectural term. And so yeah, but at the same time, with the way that that deep sleep term is used, it's a, a communicating a, a vision. And the point that, that I think the author is making is that it's so much more than a single rib. It's so much more than a single rib. And we're going to see that. What does Adam, how does Adam describe this woman uh, in verse 23? This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So is that more than just a single rib? If it's more than just a single rib, he would not have said bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. God is communicating to Adam that this woman is your other half. That out of your rib, out of your side, I'm making this woman. And it's a structural term that's used elsewhere to describe a side of a hill or side of the temple. God is communicating to Adam that this woman, this helper, is your other half. This is your other half. The man said, this is at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Uh, we see that this Adam is going on and saying that this woman is the very same as me. It's an ontological equal. So uh, man will, will usurp, uh, will leave his biology, like we talked a little earlier, to find ontology. So what does ontology mean? This might be a word that you guys have uh, heard um, uh, as an apologetic term, the ontological truth. Uh, this is where man is leaving more than his physical existence to find what it means to be. Does that make sense? So this is that, that deep emotional, uh, not, I don't want to say spiritual truth, uh, but this is, is, it's more than just the, to live, to, to go through physically presence. It's actually knowing what your purpose is, knowing what that, that truth of your purpose is. And so man will leave, father and mother will leave more than just that physical aspect, that physical security, so that he can find the ontological equal. And the ontological equal is woman. The ontological equal is what was taken from his side, what was taken as a rib. Uh, and just real quick, I, I know I'm getting some anxiety on the ribs. Um, this is the only place it's used as rib. 
And the only time it's used as rib is it was translated that way in the Latin Vulgate. So when it went from uh, the Greek language into the Latin language, it was translated as rib. And then when John Tyndale, I think it was Tyndale, translated it from the, the Latin into the English, he used the word rib here. Nowhere else is the word rib used. It's only here that he used that word rib. And throughout our English translation, translations, it's the only time where you see that word rib. Everywhere else, it's his side or the structural supports. And so we will, through translation, we actually see some interpretation, and we lose the point. The point is that Eve is so much more. This woman is so much more than a single rib. This woman is his entire half. How functional are we if we can walk around with only half of a body? We're not. We're not. That's what happens when we don't have that woman associated with us. Does that make sense? Therefore, a father shall leave his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. When you take two halves and you put them back together, what do you have? One. And so God is showing us the, the, the deep truth that man and woman come together to form one. And they were able to do what God had set them out to do to keep the, 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 uh, maintain the holiness of the garden together because they were one flesh. And then we see that last little statement here in verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. As Bruce pointed out earlier, there's some innocence here. There's some innocence associated with this creation. Comments or questions? I know I opened up some can of worms. Yeah, and, and yeah, so what, what, uh, what Wayne's pointing out is that the way that that term, bone of my bones, is used throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, we see it in chapter 7, verse 13. We'll see it in 17, 23, 26, 29, 14, and 50, 25. Um, throughout some of that, it is used as, as a very same, or uh, like Noah, in chapter 7, it's been termed as the very same day. Uh, in chapter 17, when Abraham is instituted with the, the covenant of circumcision, um, it's talking about on that very same day. That term, bone of my bones, is, is used as very same day. And let me know if I'm, I'm not answering your question. With Laban? With Laban? Oh, I, and I apologize. I only stuck with, with Genesis. Um, yeah, no, uh, please. So, so Wayne's saying that this, this term, bone of my bones, uh, is shown up in more uh, throughout uh, First Samuel. You have one. I was... I'll, in Judges 9-2, I'll be honest, I only looked at the Genesis accounts. Yeah, and the point, and throughout Genesis, it's also used the, the same. There's sameness, there's oneness. And whether oneness comes from the family or oneness comes from uh, at, at the same period of time, that there's some, some unity associated with that term. Does that make sense? Or am I talking over you? No, and, and please be challenged. Be, be challenged. It's it's an architectural term. It's very much. Yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. And that's what. But the point is not a physical rib was actually physically removed. The point that we need to get. And let me back up. I'm not. It is irrelevant if a single bone was taken out. The point that we need to get is that it 
resembles, uh, it is there to describe his other half, his other side. So when you say the bones of a building, the building has good bones, that's a good analogy, I think, because it's talking about if we were to remove part of the bones of the building, what would happen to the building? It would collapse. And so he is saying that part of Adam's bones, part of Adam's side, his side was removed. And if we remove his side, he can't function, he can't do what he needs to do until that other side is married back together. Does that make sense? Greg. Yeah, and so Greg's comment was, uh, it's that that same term um, that's used to describe the sides of the Ark of the Covenant uh, and would be likened to us saying that two people are attached at the hip today. And and, and this is, I I think, a, a really good example of how it is really neat to dig in and understand this stuff to the nth degree. Uh, and I'm, op- I'm purposely opening up some anxiety. I'm purposely opening up some can of worms because now what is everyone in here doing? We're digging. We're studying. And, and as a result, we're, we're better understanding it. Uh, and so I want to at least, uh, again, caution us, though, to, to focus on the point that we are to take away, the point that the initial audience was to get. And that's why I keep going back to this, this side, the structural side that Adam, the woman served as Adam's other half. And he was not complete or able to function without that other half. And so Donna was talking about that she listened to a a professor uh, of uh, Hebrew studies, a Jewish professor of Hebrew studies, and that this is a psychological union, which again goes back to that, I think what we see in verse 24, uh, the under, I don't want to say the underlying truth, but that truth that that we have a longing for more than just being biologically satisfied that there is a psychological and emotional component here that the man and his wife fulfilled. Please dig in. And I have no issue saying I am wrong. Um, if I were to, to move forward uh, in our slides, I can tell you that the, uh, the conclusion that I have come to today or throughout all this is that um, I know nothing, um, but at the end of the day, fear God and keep his commandments. Um, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Um, that, that's the key. And, and I want us to, to hit that again, that theologically, if woman was made from a singular rib of Adam, it does not impact our theology. It impacts our, our exegesis. It impacts our study. But the theological truths are the same. Does that make sense? All right. Now we'll get back into some uh, familiar, comfortable territory. Chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So as we picked up in chapter 2, we see the, uh, excuse me, the, the 
importance of nakedness. So we saw initially that, uh, what did the author tell us? That they were naked, and what was the result? They were not ashamed. But then they ate of this, the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they realized that they were naked, and all of a sudden they became ashamed. They became ashamed. So let's dig into this a little bit, and I'm not going to initiate a ton of anxiety uh, this time around. It'll be more comfortable. But why a serpent? Why a serpent? We see in chapter 1, or verse 1, excuse me, that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. But we also see that the Lord God did what to the serpent? He made the serpent. So why is the story using a serpent? Let me step, take a step back. What is the serpent? Okay, it's a snake, but we see later on when we look at this, when we read into it, what do we think of, what do we associate with the serpent? Evil, devil, Satan, right? Does anyone else think Satan when they see snake? Why do we think Satan when we see snake? Because in Revelation, it talks about that that serpent, that ancient, or, or that the dragon, the ancient serpent of old, Satan. So we see in Revelation, I think it's also in Romans 16, this connection between the serpent and Satan. But if we were to read this as Israelites, would they make that connection? No, they wouldn't. We can see that that larger truth, but they would not see this as Satan. So why is a snake being, and this is inspired text, why is God communicating this by or using a serpent? Shoot for it, Don. No wrong answers. Yeah, and, and that's why, and you're absolutely right. I don't think it is possible to know. I, I have a, a theory, a thought, uh, but it is interesting, as Don brought up, they're in this garden, and Eve doesn't appear to be taken back to the fact that the serpent's talking to her, right? We don't see, oh, no, what's going on here? Mark, did you have a, a comment? Yeah, no, and, and there, there's so much, that, there's so much that shows, and, and the text only shows that the serpent was more, crafty or more shrewd or more subtle than the other creations that who made? God made. So God made this serpent. So if we were to take a step back, uh, who do, do we attribute the writing of Genesis to? Moses. And Moses was familiar uh, with, or the Moses and the people of Israel lived in what country? Well, they lived in the same country. They, 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 they left what country? Egypt. Now think of mummies, think of Pharaoh's tombs, think of Pharaoh's crown. What's on the top of Pharaoh's crown? A serpent. What is associated, associated with a lot of pagan, de, or pagan worship? A snake. If you look that through Egyptian culture, uh, a snake was a, a spiritual guide to Pharaoh on his way to, I don't know what they lived after death, life after death. So he was a spiritual guide. And so a thought is, a snake is called out here, and we look at the text that there's significance with the snake because God made the snake, and there could be a tie-in to God, showing God's power over paganism. God has power over the snake that deceives Eve um, and that it's just kind of a, a subtle jab to Egypt and Egyptian religion. It's kind of a neat little aside, but I don't know. So that word snake has associated from a, a, a language standpoint with the term divination. 
but we see that God made the snake. Who's in control? God. The one who makes the, 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 the entity is in control. And so what did the snake do to Eve? He had this conversation. And where did this conversation take place? Uh, I bumped up. Um, let me take a, a quick tangent. Um, anyone know what this picture is up here? Okay, so this is what I was intending to talk about before I opened up the rib can of worms. Um, this is Van Gogh's Starry Night. And what is this a picture of? The sky, right? A starry night sky. We can all look at that and understand that that is a starry sky. What's this? A starry sky. This is a picture from the Hubble telescope. And it's showing a... Both of these pictures show the same thing. But do they look the same? No. Does that make this one less true? Is that less of a starry night than this one? It's just looking at things differently. When Van Gogh is painting, he's painting his starry night and he's communicating it this way. We want to look at a starry night from a scientific standpoint, from an accuracy standpoint. And so now let's look at this. I'm going to use this illustration to look at Genesis. When we look at Genesis, we really want to look at it from this standpoint. But the author is more likely communicating in this standpoint. Does that make sense? Or did I just reopen a can of worms that we moved on from? Okay. We think of uh, the conversation happening with Eve and the serpent uh, based off this picture, or a, a similar picture to this, right? Um, where they're in the garden and uh, the snake is coiled up within the tree uh, and the fruit is there looking really good. Uh, does the text tell us where the conversation takes place? Okay, so, well, it, uh, Tom brings up chapter 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, um, that could have been immediate. It could have been later on. And so the, the, the reason I bring this up is uh, if we look at the garden, as being the holy presence of God. We're going to see, uh, again, not this week, but next week, that uh, in verse 8, after they, uh, they ate of this tree, that they hid themselves from the presence of God. And then we only see communication verbally. Um, and so the question that I ask myself is, how was this snake in the holy presence of God in the garden? Yeah, and so uh, God garden what was holy and was to be maintained as holy. And so I just bring that up because the text doesn't say that this happened in the garden. Uh, and this is all hypothetical and, and it's just out there to, for fun conversations. And uh, Mark brings up that in Job there's a term called the accuser or, or one of the accuser that we associate with Satan. Uh, and I'm not a, a Job expert, but I've heard some other folks talk that maybe that was Satan, maybe it wasn't. Satan. But regardless, um, I think that we will read into Scripture and associate this type of picture, um, where it doesn't necessarily say that Adam and Eve were, were precluded from leaving the garden. So this conversation could have happened in the tree just like this. It could have happened outside of the garden. We know that he, we, he put him in the garden first. That is where he wanted to be to work and keep it. Uh, and that's what, if we also look at this from a, uh, and again, this is all hypothetical. This is some of the f fun stuff to talk about, 
fun stuff to get our blood pressure up about, um, but this doesn't change the theological truth. The theological truth is that man failed. Adam and Eve failed. Whether the conversation happened right below the tree, outside the garden, if Adam and Eve could move to and from within and out of the garden, uh, I don't know. All I know is that man failed in his responsibility. Man's responsibility was, as we saw in chapter 2, to um, um, work and keep the garden. They were told, what was the command that God gave them? Two commands. You may eat of the fruit of any tree. And then the second command, do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When Satan is talking, or when the snake, excuse me, when the, see how easy it is to fall? When the serpent is talking to Eve, he challenges her. Did God really say that? Eve comes back and says what? She repeats what God said. And the woman said, chapter 3, verse 2, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. What other tree was in the midst of the garden? Tree of life. So we see that the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, are both in the midst of the garden. She adds, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Was that in God's command? No. So we see that Eve, or the woman, adds a, a portion, or adds something additional to God's commands. God's commands were don't eat of that tree, the fruit of that tree. And what does she do? Don't eat or touch it. And so we, we can run into some issues, and, and we're out of time today, um, where we add to what God says. And you can see that uh, whether this was Adam communicating uh, this message to Eve, that we're not supposed to eat it, and as, by the way, don't even touch it. It could be Adam adding to it, but that's what Eve communicated on. Don. Yeah, and that's true. Uh, it could be that there was some additional conversation with God. Um, however, I think that from the author's standpoint, we were told uh, the commands of God and that we see here that there's something different about the woman's response versus what God told the man. Go ahead, Bev. Yeah, Bev's absolutely right, and that's kind of what we talked about with the starry night, um, that the way that, that they viewed history, though, is different than the way that we view history. We want history to be uh, from a scientific and the way that uh, the Israelites wrote history and read history were, were completely uh, different. It still communicates the message, but it doesn't do it the way we want it done, and that's what brings us anxiety. Wayne, you had a point? Yes. Yeah. So Wayne brings up again that uh, God communicated his message to Adam, and here the conversation is with Eve. So what did Adam tell Eve? And that's a big question. What did Adam tell Eve? Was Adam trying out of the best intentions to protect Eve? By keeping her away from that tree? I don't know. Uh, so we'll dig up uh, that again and, and see. pick up in verse 6 again. Close our, our time out um, next week. Uh, any other comments before we, we close? Marty. Yeah, and so Marty mentions that uh, we don't know what the serpent looked like in the beginning. Uh, we'll look at that um, again next week in verse 14, uh, where he, he curses the, the serpent and says, you'll crawl on your belly. Donna? Yeah, and, and if you remember back in chapter 1, verse 26, there's something specific about God created the sea monsters on that day. 
And so there, there's this significance throughout the Old Testament on serpent, on sea monster. Uh, and the term, uh, today's term that would be used for it would be like chaos creatures, uh, ones that go against the order that God put in place. Uh, we're out of time. Uh, I love the discussion. Um, please dig in, study, tell me I'm wrong, tell me I'm looking at things differently because that's what uh, the goal of this class is to, to do, is to for, force us to look in, to challenge our preconceived notions, but not necessarily challenge our theology. Theologically, we're the same, but exegetically, from a study standpoint, we may come to different conclusions. And it's amazing to me how much I have read into Scripture how much we read into it without knowing. Uh, we'll, we'll close with a quick prayer, and then we have a few minutes before our worship time. Father, we're thankful for this day. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful, Father, for the passion that we all have uh, to dig in, to define your truths, Lord, uh, and to glean the information that you would have us glean from it. We pray, Father, for uh, continued humility as we, we dig into your word and find your will for us. We're thankful, Father, for the, this uh, uh, historical account that has been recorded for us. And we pray, Father, that we can learn from it and not make the, the same mistakes uh, or, or reduce the number of mistakes we make that are similar to Adam, similar to Eve. We love you, Lord, and this prayer we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to West Visalia Audio. We hope these messages have helped you grow and inspired you to take action. Be sure to check in each week for more on-the-go content or visit our YouTube channel to watch the live video. Thanks for participating and God bless.